every time we sing a song or read a scripture, I'm like, well, we could just stop there and talk. There's lots to talk about there. Uh, and, and today of all days, I would be happy to just like stop and talk about any of these other things, but we need to turn to Exodus chapter 22. Uh, we're picking up where we left off uh, right before Advent started. So this was back in November. I preached from the first half of Exodus 22. And so today we're reading the second half. Exodus 22, starting in verse 16. It says, If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. See why I would rather talk about something else? <laughs> verse 17, If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear for I am gracious. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. And you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. And so in looking at the law, there, there is a certain structure that is in Exodus. We don't actually go into all the details of all the law, but we get pieces of the moral and ceremonial laws. And so this is one of those sections where we have a piece of it we had earlier um, back in chapter 21 coming over here. So we're going to be looking at this for a little bit and then, and, and, and then we'll discover that the feast will be talked about and then... Moses will go up into the mountain and while he's up in the mountain receiving instructions for the tabernacle is when the golden calf happens and then he comes back down. There's that whole episode and then eventually he's actually now instructing the people and they're actually building the tabernacle. And so we'll get to all of that later um, as we continue through the chapter. But right now we're in this part about the moral and the ceremonial law or principles that are being handed down to the children of Israel through Moses. And so if I read something like verse 16, where it says, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. And if I look at that from my culture and where I am, I'm like, okay, so I, I don't quite know what to do with this because in, in my culture, I, I feel like there's, I mean, we don't even know what to call a bride price. Like, what is this? And so how do I apply something like this when I'm like, I, I, we don't have a bride price in our thing. 
And, and I can understand if someone says, well, they, you know, this man enticed or seduced a virgin and, and they, they had sex together and then they need to get married. But then in verse 17, it says, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him. So like maybe her dad's like, no, absolutely not, not to you. And so he says, then he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. So now he, so there's like this, there's this bit in here that feels that in a cultural sense that I don't understand it. And so I wanted to back off a bit and say, well, there's a lot, you know, in what I just read, there's a lot of uh, pieces. Um, and we won't actually take every one of these pieces apart this morning, but I wanted to back up a bit and say, how, wh- what are we, when we're talking about the law and when God is talking, well, what is happening? What's going on here? So I want to read over from Psalm 19, uh, verse, starting in verse 7. And so in Psalm 19, Starting verse seven, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So he starts out this little section by saying the, Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I can see how if you're reading through this, you might say, ah, okay, so there's, there's warnings here. And so he's warning us. There's something that God is warning us. But the, the converting of the soul, and then if you think about Psalm 1 where it says that we should meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And you think, well, this is part of the law of the Lord. So what is it that I'm meditating on when I meditate through these things? What am I seeing here? What's part of that? So, so to understand the bigger picture, we have to understand that God's law has a purpose. It has an intention. And it has to do with safeguarding us, protecting us, warning us so that we can avoid the danger that is coming. But it also has the, the desire to actually convert our soul, to change us from being who we were to being who God is making us to be. And so this is, this is not just a New Testament salvation, but this is just the way God interacts with his people throughout all time is he is wanting to work in each of us. And so the law of the Lord, the things that he speaks, there's a reason why he speaks it. And it has to do something with protection where it says, by them is your servant warned, but it also has to do something with reward keeping and in keeping them, there is great reward. Now I've talked about this before a lot of times that the reward that we are looking at when we're in scripture, a lot of times it's Jesus Christ himself. He is our reward. And so the, the idea is as God is speaking to the children of Israel, he is wanting for himself a people. So let's look over in Exodus chapter three, starting back with while they are still in Egypt Exodus chapter three in verse six. Um, so God is speaking to Moses at the burning bush and he says in, ver- in, chapter, in verse six, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people 
who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So we have God speaking to Moses going, I'm hearing the oppression of my people. I see them. So this is part of the message of, of what we're about to get to is, is God going to his people saying, I see you, you're my people. From the beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am their God and I'm your God and I see you, I see the oppression you're in. And then if you move on over to chapter 14, uh, so Exodus 14, the last two verses, 30 and 31. It, so this is after they've come through the Red Sea. In verse 30, it says, <clears throat> so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So God has now brought them out. They have now seen the deliverance. So they heard from Moses and Aaron that God spoke to them in the wilderness and said, I see you, I see that you're oppressed and I want to rescue you. Now they've seen that rescue. They have actually seen themselves being rescued by God. So now if we go over to chapter 19, Exodus 19, and they're at Mount Sinai and they're getting ready to get the, the law of the Lord, the 10 commandments as we call them. But if you start in verse three, it says, Moses went up, so this is Exodus 19, verse three. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people, laid before them all these words which the Lord had commanded to him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. <clears throat> and so where we are right now in Exodus 22 21, 22, and 23, is we're right in between the promise of God to the children of Israel that he is going to make of them a people and kingdom and, and priests of priests, and he's going to take them to the promised land. We're not in the promised land yet, but we've come out of Egypt, and so we're in between these two big parts of the, of the account. We are out of Egypt. We have seen the deliverance of the Lord, but we're not in Canaan yet. And while we're out here, God is speaking to his people and he's inviting them in on this relationship with him. And so God is saying something about himself as he's telling his people, 
basically how they should think and act and live in preparation for Canaan, for the promised land. And so if we look at this purely from a, wow, how many bizarre laws can there be in the Old Testament? It can, might be an interesting bit of trivia or whatever. But if we look deeper and say, what is going on here? What is it that God is saying? Part of what he's saying when he says, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed, then part of what he's going there is he's saying something about his heart for single girls. And so if you start looking through all of script, these laws here, you'll discover that in many of these cases, the law is written in such a way that there is somebody that God is protecting. And so in this case, he is trying to protect the not just the oppressed, but the one in a position of vulnerability, the one who is, 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 is being taken advantage of, and he's making sure that they're not just being taken advantage of. God cares if you, you know, if we read over here in verse 21 where it says, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. And he goes, he just gives this very strong like, don't mistreat the stranger, don't oppress the widow, don't be mean to the fatherless. And so we see this heart of God here in this. And so when we come back and we read the first verse that we had read when it talks about the virgin, it's basically saying, I don't want anyone to oppress anyone and I don't want you as the children of God to be oppressors. You've been oppressed and the world will continue to oppress and the ungodly will continue to oppress people, but I don't want you to oppress anyone. And so what's fascinating to me about this is how many ways we can find to oppress someone else. If you look at history, you will see people who have oppressed with the sword. You will see people who have oppressed with just simple control of daily life. Um, one of the things that I do not understand to this day is how much oppression has happened in our, in the last couple hundred years in the name of fashion and culture, like the stuff that the weirdness that happens even now on the fashion runways of the world and the way to get on those is just, there's so much oppression of people who really have a deep desire to want to be accepted. And so if you look at the, the, the model industry and the, the world of models and you see how much oppression happens in that, and it's, it's, it's wicked. And you have individuals who, and, and this is, you know, God puts inside at the heart of a young girl that she is beautiful and she wants to appear beautiful. And so then if that is taken and, and, and exploited, there's wickedness there. We have to be so careful of what we do with the God-given desires that God places in us. And so I think if we stop and just look at the, that very first one and we think of young girls in particular and what are they looking for in marriage in general, they're not looking for some wild, crazy relationship with some guy that just comes in and then it's gone again. They actually are looking for someone who will be with them throughout the rest of their life. 
and they're looking for that relationship. That's the way God created it. That's what God designed us for. And so in this instance, because in, in I think the, in our everyday language, we would read it more like this. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to anyone and has sex with her, he must pay the customary bride price and marry her. And so the, the, the God's desire is to protect the young girl and say, I've given you a proper and righteous desire for a home, a family, a future. And if someone comes along, a man, and, and tries to rob some of that away from the young girl, God says, no, that's not the way this works. You can't just do that. And so you will find other laws in here. And as we were reading through this one, one of the things I started noticing is that there are so many ways that one individual person can use another individual for their own purposes. And God says, no, I do not want you to be using each other for your purposes. I want you to be blessing each other, protecting each other, honoring each other, respecting each other, caring for each other. And so even in the church, it's possible for people to use each other. And so uh, the abuses that will happen in the church often have to do with um, the, the it's, it's like there's a proverb that says, no, it just skipped my mind, but basically the idea is this, um, you know, if, you, if you're gonna have a leader, a prince or a king or something, but you don't have any followers, like what sort of a prince or leader is that? And so for, if people are starting churches and doing things in the ministry, and, and then they, they need other people to, to sit in the chairs uh, to be listening. And so I, I just remember sitting in a church that I was part of for a short while. We had such a difference in philosophy of ministry that I ended up not staying there. Um, but from the pulpit, the pastor would say, God has called me to come preach the gospel here and he's called you to come sit and listen. And it always made me a little uncomfortable because I was like, God has also called me to go do stuff. And if you remember last week, we had the, the diagrams up here where we showed the pictures of everyone coming in to meet with the Lord and then we go back out. And, and afterward, I was chatting a little bit with some of the guys and, and, and what, I, you know, what I was trying to say then and what I wanted to say now is I'm not trying to cast a bold new vision and say, here's what we're going to do. I'm literally only commenting on this is what we are. This is who we are. We gather and then we go out and then we gather and then we go out. And this is what Christians everywhere do. And so what we do with the time when we're together is a very precious opportunity to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to shine each other's armor, to wash each other's feet, to equip each other. That's what's so precious about fellowship and the picture of Christ and the church of us all coming together is we're receiving from the Lord the things that we need to go out there and do the things that God has called you to do. And I, I said it last week, I said, you know, there's some, there are parts of your calling that operate better here in the, in the gathering of the fellowship and there's parts of your callings and giftings that operate better out there. And if you've ever um, run into that where you're doing something out there and then you come here and you're like, well, I can't do my gift or my calling. I, can't, I don't know what to do with it because I know what to do out there. I don't know what to do in here or vice versa. You know what I'm talking about. Like there's a gifting and a calling. 
And there's some things that we only kind of do when we're together. Um, and then there's other things that we don't really do here as much as we do out there. And that's okay. The point with us gathering and being a fellowship is that we are coming together <clears throat> to be encouraged in the Lord. Let me grab my drink real quick. I think I have it over here. So, in the <clears throat> moment where we are, between the Exodus, but before going into Canaan, we're given a glimpse into the heart of God by seeing his law. God's desire is to protect and provide for everyone. <clears throat> a man might have a different desire to use and so in this case with verse 16, he might have a desire to use a girl without protecting or providing. And God says, no. So all of God's law is here for the protection of his people. And so at the same, the same section of the law that we're looking at, <coughs> if you look over in Deuteronomy, you will find um, at the same timing, there's some more explanation of why God is giving the law as he is. So in the recounting of the law, there are some nuances given here. So in Deuteronomy chapter six, this is in, in, um, in Deuteronomy, what we would call the 10 commandments is in chapter five. And so now we're in the same period of the same place. It's just being recounted. So this is another account of the same thing that we've just been going through. So Deuteronomy chapter six, starting in verse three, <clears throat> it says, therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God, the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. So note that it says that it may be well with you. And then he says this, hear, O Israel, this is verse four, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your heart and on your gates. And so God is saying, I, I want it to be well with you. And if you go on over to chapter seven, Deuteronomy seven, and you look at verse six, he says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face. 
to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. <clears throat> There's basically an opportunity being given to the people saying, look, you can be on the right side of God the side of blessing. And if you go keep reading, there will, in Deuteronomy, there's the blessings of obedience, and then it goes to the, the, um, basically the, the curse of disobedience. And you'll find that in several different places in the law where it'll just line it all out and say, here are all the blessings, here's all the curses. And so God is basically giving an opportunity to humans to say, look, there is a way for you to be restored to me and to be in right, right relationship with me, which, which is what Jesus is to us. We're in right relationship to God, the Father. And so we don't have to be enemies of God. We don't have to go through the world fighting against God, being enemies with God. We can actually be the friend of God. We can actually be known by God. We can be on his side. That's the invitation and so what we see later in Exodus, we'll see a moment where, where at one point Moses takes his tent and pitches it outside the camp, basically. And he goes out there because the people have rebelled. And so he goes out there and it says in there that Moses would come and go from the tent, but Joshua, his assistant, would just stay in the presence of the Lord. And I think about that a lot of times is there were a lot of people who were having different complaints and different problems and they came into one of the calf, the golden calf, and did all of these things that they were doing. And, and Joshua was walking with Moses and seeing God interacting with Moses on a personal level going, I want that, I want that. So I don't know what would have happened if all of Israel would have said, look, they had the opportunity when God came and spoke in the mountain, they had the opportunity to say, you know what? I, I want to hear God's voice. I'm a little scared but I really want to hear his voice. So Moses, let's, let's keep doing this. They had the opportunity, but instead they said, why don't you go talk to God and we'll stay here in the camp. What happened when that, they said that? They were like, you know what? Why don't you just make a different God, Aaron? We're kind of scared of this one. Like it happened so quick. Their heart was not toward the Lord. And so as soon as God was busy elsewhere talking with Moses, they were like, ah, let's do something different. And they were that quickly, they were off. And this is the, the when we talk about our, the, the, our heart being deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, that's what we're talking about. We can go so quickly from, I love the Lord, I want to serve him, to, I'd rather just do my own thing. And we will lie to ourselves, we will lie to other people, we'll lie to God about what's happening and what we really want. And yet God is saying over and over again, I want you to be my special people and I'm going to give you some of the secrets here. And so when he gives us the law, this is part of what he's saying. So let's, let's just go back to Exodus 22 and just read through this section one more time. So in verse 16, it says, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If, he, if her father utterly refuse to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. 
So with this, we see a certain protection that God is building in for the young ladies, but he's also putting in a protection for the young men going, look, just get yourself a wife. Do it the right way. Honor God. Get a wife. Be a man. Verse 18, it says, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. And we look at this and say, what? A sorceress. And so basically, anytime someone is looking for power to change things in this life from another source besides the God of heaven, this sorcery is going on. And so he's, he is in a very succinct sentence here, is trying to protect the children of Israel from going off after false gods and doctrines of demons. He says, I want you to focus on me and me only. Don't allow a sorceress to live in your midst. <clears throat> Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. So whenever we see something like that, where it says be put to death, like there's, to, to us, the, 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 sometimes we're like, wow, that's really harsh. But then when you, we look and see what perversions he's talking about, he's literally trying to protect his people. And, and we know that when there are laws against something and there's heavy penalties, um, it does impact how many people are willing to risk doing something wicked if they know what the penalty is. And so God is trying to put a safeguard in here saying, don't do this. It is, it is wickedness and it will end on your death. Verse 20, he who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Verse 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And the response from God is just is extreme when you, when you stop and think about it. But he's saying, I am caring and I'm watching. So when you look at all of the history of mankind and how many times widows and fatherless have been, orphans have been really taken advantage of and mistreated, and you see what the heart of God is, you realize that there is justice in eternity. There is justice that God has. And God wasn't not paying attention. He was seeing. If they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? So this is something that we don't always understand as much, but like the idea is I need something from you. And so maybe you have something that a tool or, um, you know, in this case, you might be borrowing someone's donkey or something, but the only thing I have to give you is as a pledge is I give you my coat. That's the only thing I have because I'm poor. I don't have anything else. And so I'm off working with the, the thing that I'm borrowed from you or whatever, and you take this as a pledge, or maybe there's a, a, a business deal that we're working on. And he says, don't withhold basic needs from your neighbor, from, you know, be kind to each other, help each other out. <clears throat> Verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. When I think of the reviling of God or the cursing the ruler of, our pe of your people, it's not so much that God is trying to protect 
someone else from you at that point. He's trying to protect you from you. A heart that reviles God, a heart that curses a ruler, that heart has a wrong perspective on life and is going to hurt itself eventually. And so God is saying, I want to protect you from yourself. I need you to understand that there is a proper way in the kingdom of that I am in the relationship I'm creating with you. And so for us in the kingdom of heaven that we're part of, that we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, we're part of this kingdom. There's something different that operates here than the way the kingdoms of the world work. And so while the kingdoms of the world might curse their leaders, we have been called to pray for them. While the king, kingdoms of the earth might have a different way of dealing with a leader that they disagree with, we've been called to bless our enemies. And so there's a lot that is different in the relationship we have with God than what other people deal with, but we, than people outside of that relationship with God deal with. And we need to understand that and to get the heart of God and see that. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. And so this is the very, just a brief mention of giving something to the Lord. So we might call this tithing where you're giving the first fruits. But the idea is that when, when we are aware that the work that we're doing and the, the, the increase that we're gaining is a blessing from God, then it helps us to treat it in a different and a better way. And so God is basically saying, I want you to always remember Whatever gain you're making, I want you to always remember that this is a blessing from God and it comes from God. So be quick to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. And you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So he's just, he's saying a few things directly to the men going, I, I just want you to understand who you are. You are holy men. You are different than just what you used to be. So there's a change in how you act. When you earn something, when you gain something, when your flocks have, whether it's oxen or sheep, if, there's, if you're having an increase, whether you're having a family, I want you to think of all of that as mine and I want you to be quick to give that first fruit. And part of that is, again, a protection of ourselves, you know, I, I've, I remember when I was reading the book, um, the Brother Andrew book, when Andrew, before he was off doing this, the, God's, uh, the smuggling part, when before he was going, taking the Bibles, then he had gone to a Bible school and they were trying to learn how to live for the Lord. And so a group of them were, were groups of them or teams of them were sent out into different parts of Holland and other places to go to encourage the church. And so they would just kind of show up in a village, find out who was there and, and set up a meeting to just encourage the church. That's what they were there for. And so they would get there and uh, they were supposed to not rack up any debt, but to just go out and, and pray and receive from the Lord the things that they needed to be able to encourage the church there. And so one of the things that Brother Andrew's team was doing was they were always, they would say, hey, we're gonna have a, a, a gathering, we're going to sing some songs and have some devotionals, and then we're going to have cake, and then they just invite everyone to come. And so they started this, this, this process, and at times, they would get there the day of, and they would send out the invitation or start sharing the word that they're going to have this meeting, and they didn't have any cake, and they didn't have any money, and so they would pray, Lord, we need a cake. We said we, you, we're going to give them cake, so we need cake. 
And so the way God would provide for them a cake was amazing how God would provide for them just at the last minute. Someone would be like, oh, do you need a cake? I have an extra one here. And they were like, well, yes, we do. And so they would take that. And so <clears throat> what they were learning, though, as a team was sometimes people would give them finances, financial gifts. And so they would be quick to tithe on that. And so this is something that is a, is, is, can be more of a personal conviction, but I thought the testimony of this was powerful. So they would be quick to, when God provided something for them, they would say, okay, this much we're going to use for our needs, but we've got to tithe this. And so they would find a way to give a tenth of it to someone else to use it in some way as a blessing, but they were setting it apart on purpose to say, this belongs to the Lord. And so as they were doing that, they kept being surprised over and over again at how much God took care of them. God would just, everywhere they went, they would receive the things that they needed. And so in his life, he was really being taught the importance of putting God first and recognizing that everything that I have belongs to the Lord. And the way I know that I am aware of that is I take a section of it, whatever it is that I receive, we take a piece of it and we immediately give it. And so they were renting halls to use, um, to meet in. They were renting spaces. They were traveling. They were buying food for themselves. So they had plenty of needs and they were doing it by faith. They were praying for the money to come in and they were receiving that. And in his testimony, what he says is when they got back home, some of the other groups that had been sent out came home and they had debts all back across the land because they've been borrowing money all over the place. Because at some point, and they said, well, we, we, we so they were asked, well, did you tithe? Because this has actually been part of the training in their school was that you needed to tithe something of everything that you're given. And, and the answer was, well, we, we needed it and we couldn't afford to tithe, so we didn't. And so Brother Andrew was sharing this as his way of going, the rest of my life, I made a big deal out of first giving to the Lord. And so as far as making a, a case and saying everybody needs to give 10% of a tithe to a church, I think there's a, I don't quite think we can make that case. I've heard a lot of people make that case in different ways, but I don't quite think that is exactly the heart of God. I think the heart of God is that everything he gives me is already his and a very easy way for me to keep that always first and foremost in my heart is to take a portion of it, the first fruits, the 10%, and to give it to something. So we tithe, Stacy and I, we tithe to the church, but there is also times when we look for other places to give and other ways to give a nice a, a gift that we can give that it helps us remember that the money that we have is not ours. It belongs to the king. He is really our provider and our source. So all the activities we're doing, all the things we're doing, that is just part of what we're doing for him. And, and this is, I think, in line with the idea that God is trying to protect us from ourselves. Because I can, I can start saying, well, I can't afford this. I can't do this. I can't do that. And I, my focus can come off of what God has called me to do, what God wants me to do, and just being like on what I think I can or can't do. And in the same way that maybe, <clears throat> you know, when it says, you shall not have any other gods before me, the big deal there is that there is one God in heaven and I need to keep my eyes on him. 
Well, on something like this with the first fruits, the law of the first fruits or the law of tithing, any of these that we look at and we'll, I think we'll come across a few more in Exodus before we're done, is that the heart of God is saying, I want you to never forget that there is one God in heaven and you serve him. You serve me. I, you are mine. And so for us, I think there are multiple times in different ways that we can put principles into effect in our life that will actually help us to remember that we are not our own. We belong to Christ. We are not here to oppress. We're here to protect, to provide. We're here to bless. We're not here to curse. So we have all of these things that are in the law that when we first read them, we might either think of them as awkward or obscure or just not making sense. But I I want us to look at them as we come across them, even when we go to building the tabernacle later, God is trying to show us his heart. He's trying to reveal who he is. And he can do that in a lot of different ways. So I am encouraged when I see this and I see how God is really going out of his way to try to bring the children of Israel all in on the same page in preparation for going and you know they're going from being slaves to they're going to be landowners and, and they're going to be the rich people in Canaan in a short amount of time. And so God is trying to show how they should act and live. And he's giving them principles and truths. And sometimes it's observational law, but a lot of times it's not. It's actual like law with consequences. And he's saying, I want you to live in a way that brings glory and honor to the Lord. And, and, and that does not oppress or exploit other people, including yourselves. I don't want you to hurt yourself. And so this is, I think, good for us to stop and think, what of God's law, what of his word, of his truth, that he might have put into my life to protect me? Am I going, oh, yeah, I, I'm fine. I don't need that. And I might be fine for a little while, but then eventually I, I can run into something and go, oh, this was why. This is why this was there. I need to be aware of that. So there's a lot of scripture, random truths in, that probably aren't that random if you understand the heart of God, but they feel random when we read through them that are there because God loves us, because he's trying to show us something about himself and something about us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the law of your law, Lord, that it is perfect, converting the soul. Lord, that you have a desire from the beginning that mankind comes to you, knows you, walks with you, and is yours. And you want to protect the weak. You want to protect people from being exploited. You want to bless and encourage and grow us. So I pray, Father, for us, each of us, that first of all, we would have, that we would choose that relationship of wanting to be with you, wanting to walk with you, wanting to be obedient to you, wanting to hear your heart and your voice, and that we would choose to be on the side of the blessing rather than on the side of the oppression, that we would not oppress anyone, but that we would learn to be people of blessing, people of obedience, people of God and of your law. But we love you and I thank you that in preparation for sending us Jesus, you showed us all of these things 
that your spirit can work in us so quickly that we can look at intellectually and it can take us lifetimes to try to master it and figure it out. And yet your spirit comes and quickens us. And suddenly our desires in our heart are aligned with heaven and are aligned with you. And I thank you for that. So pray, Father, you give us your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.